regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where you have a long-form and in-depth conversation with our practitioners to unpack the narrative journeys of their career. My guest today is Chris Bricomany, who is an engineer, an author, an investor, and advisor. He has worked on infrastructure as an engineer and manager for about 15 years at companies like PayPal, LinkedIn, and WePay. He's involved in open source as the original author of Apache Samza and early contributor to Apache Airflow. He's also written a book with Dimitri Raboy called The Missing Readme, a guide for software engineers. Lately, he's been investing in startups in the data space. So Chris, it is really my great pleasure to have you on the show today. Ah, likewise. I'm really, really happy to be here. Thank you. Fabulous. By way of introduction, while uh, doing some research on your profile, I found out that you uh, went to Santa Clara University in the mid-2000s, getting your bachelor's degree in computer science and your master's degree in software engineering. And during your time in school, you also uh, interned at Neomagic and Intech Corporation. So how would you describe your overall educational experience at Santa Clara? So... Actually, I started, I did my first year, my freshman year at USC. So rearranged the letters a little bit. So I was down in LA for my first year. And at that point, I was kind of interested in the fusion of video and technology, sort of entertainment technology. I kind of naively just went down there thinking I could, you know, kind of work on both. But USC is very, in their cinematography and department and entertainment stuff, they're very, very focused. So like you have to have a portfolio. I had no idea, right? So I was going in there as a CS undergrad. And I found that while I was getting a, a reasonable you know, CS education there, I wanted to work, right? I wanted to be involved in tech companies while I was at university. And the opportunities were much better in Silicon Valley than in LA at that time. I mean, this is <laughs> going back a number of years and so I transferred up to Santa Clara my sophomore year. And as you mentioned, I got a job initially at this little company called Neomagic, where they were kind of initially known for making video cards. But by the time I got there, they were working on a chipsets for cell phones and had actually this really cool cell phone implementation that was essentially like an iPhone. It was a touchscreen, no buttons, and you know, it didn't really go that far. So I transferred over to, to Intact while I was working. On the education side of things at Santa Clara, it was great. I enjoyed it. One of the nice things about going to school in Silicon Valley is a lot of the professors, especially at the master's level, I found, were people that had worked in industry. And I found that really, really valuable. So, you know, I had a guy that worked at Intel for, you know, 20 years that was teaching one of, you know, project management class. And then I had someone else uh, that was doing database stuff that had worked at Oracle, right? So that, that's like, really nice to, to be able, that was again, kind of my interest. I wasn't so much interested in the academic stuff as more of the applied stuff. So that all went well. And like I said, I got to work while I was doing it, which I think 
also went well. I think the thing I would have loved that they didn't have there is co-op, right? So once I got in an industry, I sort of discovered, you know, like Waterloo students in particular get this really fantastic co-op program up in Canada. And, you know, they come down for six months at a time and do a stint at various companies. They get three or four of these racked up. You know, Santa Clara at the time didn't really have that. So I was sort of off on my own doing internship stuff, which I enjoyed, mm-hmm. but it was, you know, I would work for a couple of years at a time at a company versus getting a sampling of three or four different companies, uh, the way that you might at a co-op. Mm-hmm. So overall positive experience, learned a lot, but yeah, that's kind of, <laughs> yeah. Thanks for sharing that context. Do you recall on your education day, do you have a, like a specialization outside of the traditional CS curriculum? Yeah. So the undergrad CS department at Santa Clara was, I would say more heavily focused on math and sort of theoretical stuff. So it was a lot of like abstract algebra, linear algebra, that kind of stuff. They also had a computer engineering program there, which was, I would say more of like an applied computer science kind of thing where it was, it was a blend of CS computer engineering and then just straight electrical engineering probably actually would have been a better fit for me. But again, like going in as an undergrad, I didn't really understand the difference and someone tried to explain it to me and I still didn't understand the difference. So I ended up with computer science. So undergrad, I think I probably got more math than I was bargaining for. The master's degree, the way that they had it set up there was not so much a focus. It wasn't like databases or anything like that. They they just had a capstone project. However, I favored projects that were in the data and database space. So I took, you know, the ML course and the the databases course and stuff like that. So I kind of self-selected for a data focus. Honestly, I couldn't tell you why, like, I'm not sure why that was, I just sort of gravitated to it. It wasn't something deliberate, but looking back, there was definitely a bent toward those courses. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And you also mentioned that you study and you also go out there in working industry on your own, yeah. taking your own initiative to get that real world experience. Like how do you balance like yeah. academic and industry conflict, I suppose? Yeah. So the way I had arranged it, it was much easier for my master's degree because the Santa Clara master's program is set up where almost all the classes, at least at the time, were either in the morning or in the evening. And so mm-hmm. I could kind of just go to work in between, right? And I, I didn't work full-time almost at all. I worked, you know, maybe somewhere between 15 and 20 hours a week. And mm-hmm. the way I structured it in my undergrad is I would have like Tuesdays or Thursdays or Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. I would basically take some number of days that fit into my academic schedule. And I would work for about a four-hour stint. So either 10 to 2 or 8 to 12, something like that. And that was like enough load to learn some stuff, get some stuff done at the company, but not so much that it really got in the way of, you know, the actual educational part of things. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Thanks for sharing your other context. Yeah. So your first job out of school is a software engineering role at PayPal doing research on new fraud prevention techniques. And this is around 2007. And I believe they PayPal, a very well brand name at this point after they got acquired by eBay maybe a couple of years earlier. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, like, first of all, like, why did you choose PayPal as your first job? And also secondly, what were some of the value lessons that you learned from that opportunity? Yeah. So I started at PayPal actually as an intern. So I guess technically that was kind of my third internship. Mm-hmm. And I chose it 
really because of the brand name. Um, and when I applied, you know, I went and interviewed and I got the job and I got a job offer. And then it took them a very long time to actually like get me the papers and get me on board and stuff. So, so like, uh, I was either like, a couple, it was a couple months. I later found out it was just like literally the job offer was sitting on someone's desk or on someone's email and they just hadn't like pressed the button. But during that time, you know, I had no job. So I had been laid off at Intact at the time. They had laid off a bunch of people because they were kind of going through some structural changes. Mm -hmm. And so I had no income. <laughs> I was like draining my money and then my credit card started loading, started going up and up. And I was like, man, I'm not going to be able to do this much longer. Fortunately, they eventually got me onboarded, but I, there was a point at which I was like, should I just ditch PayPal and find another job that can pay me because I need money? But I suck it out. And I suck it out because of the brand name. I just sort of intuitively thought this would be good for my resume. You know, it would be good for my career trajectory to start here. Mm -hmm. So I stuck it out. I joined as an intern and then I got converted to full time. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how I ended up there. The biggest learning that I had there was the importance of the people that you work with. Like, the team that I landed on was a team that would eventually be called like the advanced concepts team. And we were doing sort of like early machine learning. And I, in particular, I was working on data visualization stuff, which I really enjoyed because it kind of got me back to not video, but at least some of the UI and design portions of computer science. But I got introduced to someone there, there named DJ Patil, mm. who was in an area of the organization called eBay Corp. And he was really influential in the early part of my career. He eventually left to go to LinkedIn. And so I, I followed him there. He really helped develop my early career. And so I guess he was really, a, I would say, a mentor for me for a while. Kind of got me on the right path, along with my intern like manager, who's, whose name was Graham Jastrzewski, who's, I believe, still at PayPal. They were both really helpful in just sort of teaching me, like guiding me, making sure I was okay, making sure I had projects that were important getting me in front of people. So it's pretty rare, but like Graham and DJ, you know, brought me along when, uh, with some of the systems that I built and we would demo them to like VPs and directors and stuff. And, and as a, you know, a very young engineer getting to sit in a room with, you know, some SVP of whatever at PayPal was, it was really neat. You learned a lot you just by being in the room and observing what was going on. So for me, looking back, you know, I, you know, sort of, just, I don't know whether it was luck or intuition, but like the willingness to stick around and wait to get the job at PayPal and then getting lucky enough to, to meet these people and sort of learn from them, I think was really a big deal. So for me, the big learning was like, find people that you want to work with, that you think you can learn from, find a mentor that's going to help you on your career. That, that was completely changed the arc of my career. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. I think finding those mentors who can be advocate for you to champion yeah. your ideas throughout the organization. And I believe that really makes you become that person for someone else mm -hmm. in your career, as we will talk about throughout the team of this conversation. You already just mentioned that you decided to follow DJ Patil to LinkedIn mm -hmm. afterwards. So around the year of 2008, you joined LinkedIn mm -hmm. as a yeah. data scientist. Yeah. And during your time there, based on my research, you work on a variety of high impact projects, such as scaling LinkedIn's Hadoop cluster, improving LinkedIn's people you may know algorithms and delivering the next generation of LinkedIn's who views my profile product. So could you mind sharing a couple of the high level technical and operational challenges that you encounter during the development of these projects? Absolutely. So the first real project that I worked on at LinkedIn was to 
essentially try and productionalize the people you may know. They call it a PYMK algorithm. So there's this little widget on LinkedIn that says when you log in, it's like, hey, here are people that you might know that you would want to connect to, right? And they found that it was highly impactful at driving connections, right? Really important for driving connections, which is something that was critical for growth and, and just the health of the overall network. And at the time I joined, it was essentially running on, it was a bunch of scripts running on querying Oracle. <laughs> and one of the biggest contributors to the algorithm, I mean, I think now unsurprisingly, but at the time this was like really novel, was something that they called triangle closing, which is essentially just friends of friends, right? So I know you, you know someone else, maybe I should connect with that somebody else. And just socially, like it makes a lot of sense. Like friends of friends are probably, you're either likely to already know them or likely to know them in the near future. And the triangle closing calculation is essentially like, you know, if you think about it in a relational database, you have connections from A to B. And so you just need to self-join, you know, from A to B. And then again, from B back to A, and then the A to A becomes your second degree connections. So that, that's a huge join in an Oracle database. <laughs> it just, it didn't work, right? So they were running this thing uh, and it would take weeks to calculate. And so they would get this new calculation and they would ship it off to production. And, and the goal here was to get it to not take weeks and to be stable and like not just time out to be able to get a progress bar. So you know how far along you were. So we went from Oracle and we tried a number of sharded database solutions that were out at the time. Most of them were like derived from Postgres. So the first one we tried was Greenplum, uh, which at the time was this data warehouse that allowed you to run on theoretically commodity hardware and do, you know, more data warehousey type queries than something like an, an Oracle OLTP system might. Didn't work out so well for us. Ended up having to get machines that were not really commodity. And then you know, I mentioned like having a progress bar or something. Didn't have that. Still, still just query would go off into Never Neverland. We used to joke about having a green plum baton. You know, there was no multi-tenancy. So wh whoever had the green plum baton was allowed to query green plum and that was it. Keep in mind, you know, I don't know if green plum is still around. It might be, but like this was, you know, 15 years ago. So I'm sure they've evolved a lot since then. We then moved to Aster, Aster Data, which I believe now Vertica owns. But again, this was a sharded Postgres solution. And we were kind of casting about trying to get this to work. And so in these first two models, we were just self-joining the same way that we were in Oracle, but the theory was, well, it's sharded, you know, it's a scatter gather thing. They should be able to, to at least complete the query. And Aster, lo and behold, was at least able to complete the inner join. Very unstable early product. You know, we were working with the founders and it just wasn't meeting our needs. And so we eventually ended up trying Hadoop. Mm -hmm. And Hadoop was, I mean, it just worked for the algorithm. We built a map and reduce, a very basic map and reduce, not application, but this piece of code. And, you know, you could see it, you could see the mappers going, you could see the reducers going and everything. And, and you could see it making progress and it would complete it, you know, at the time in about 24 hours, 18 hours, something like that, which was coming from a, a point where it was, it was almost just not finishing on these other databases. Like it would take weeks and it would time out or there'd be some issue. That was a game changer for us. So we plugged the MapReduce stuff into Azkaban, which is an orchestration. It's essentially like Airflow now, except again, it's 15 years ago. So we plugged the people you may know stuff into Azkaban and built a whole orchestration, a DAG for people you may know that did all the different calculations, not just triangle closing, but you know, what school did you go to? What company did you go to? Are there other people at the school and the company and stuff that you might know? And we built a logistic regression algorithm and it, it just worked. So 
that was my first real project. And it was, you know, something that I'm still really proud of, I think, especially as a young engineer, getting to work on something like that, of that scale and really driving results with it. Like being able to see the business was impacted going from deploying the model once a month to, you know, every 24, 48 hours, Mm -hmm. like dramatically improved the number of connections that we were seeing because uh, maybe not obviously, but the the freshness of the data matters. And so getting new recommendations every 24 hours was, was really impactful and thus gratifying to see. Your second question on the kind of operational challenges front, I think one thing that was really a shock to me was the lack of observability that we had at, at LinkedIn. We were not, you know, I think this was sort of at the early, at the cusp or just before sort of the SRE and DevOps movement kind of began. And so we didn't really have a what I would say is like a robust, you know, operations culture. We had sysops, devops, and netops. We had like a whole bunch of operations people. But then the the way that that worked is it was really black boxed to the developers. So when we wanted things to be deployed, we would have to go to the operations team and they would have to deploy it. When we wanted to see like logs, we would have to go to the operations, like literally sit with them to see the logs on the services or whatever it was. You know, in theory, we had Splunk, but in reality, the Splunk cluster could not support the level, the volume of logs we had. So it just didn't work, right? Like we could, we could not get any results from it. Same thing with metrics. We had really no charts or graphs that I could see. The, and the, the frustrating thing was the ops people had all these things, but they were like walled off where the developers couldn't see them. Mm-hmm. And so deploying a web service, you know, one of the other things I worked on, for example, was this who viewed my profile product. And we built a web service around that. And you know, we deployed it and like literally they would have the release and then I would have no, the only thing I could see was like, oh, the page is loading. <laughs> I have to like go to the ops team to see anything. That was really frustrating. And over the subsequent years, especially they brought in a SVP of engineering at LinkedIn named David Henke, who really drove a lot of change in that area. They built something called InGraphs, which was like a charting system that you could use to see you know, charts and graphs on your services. And they did a lot in that area to improve it. And they really became kind of, I think, a leader in that area. But in, in the 2008 to 2010 timeframe where I started, it, that was a real, real pain point. And I think hand in hand with that was just deployment in general. So they were doing, <laughs> it seems kind of crazy now, but they were doing weekly releases when I got there. They went to bi-weekly and they would literally turn the site off when they would do a release. So they would, every Thursday, they would, shut the site off and they would serve, you know, 404 or 500 errors with like a little wizard guy mopping the floor. And (laughs) in the back, in the background, they would have essentially all the engineers on an IRC chat and they would kind of go through and copy and paste all these jars and SCP them where they needed to be in the various uh, machines. That was brutal. The way that they were running the deployments was they had a wiki and they had steps and you would kind of fill in here. I want to deploy this web service this week. And they would kind of they had a huge dependency graph between the microservices. So, you know, it, you could only deploy service B after service A, mm-hmm. right? But then service C could only be deployed after service B. And so you would get all, it was almost like library dependencies where it became a very complex graph. You know, ideally it's acyclic, but in practice, it was actually cyclic in some cases where you'd have A calling B calling A calling C, you know, it'd be like an A, B, C, D back to A kind of a thing. And so you would end up with wikis with like 30 or 40 different deployment steps that were all manually executed by sysops, netops, devops type people. 
or I guess they call them production operations. And it would go until like three in the morning. You know, they start at like 5 p.m. and go until three in the morning. It was just a nightmare. And so that was a real, real challenge. And again, it took us several years to get out of that kind of dependency hell, for lack of a better word. And the way that we ended up doing that was around the time that the guy I mentioned, David Henke, joined, there was another fellow that joined from, I think from AdMob, which was acquired by Google at the time. His name was Kevin Scott. And one of the projects that they rolled out kind of company-wide was something they called an inversion, kind of <laughs> inverting the percentage of engineers working on engineering versus product problems. And they were essentially forced to do this because we got to a point where we could, we could like literally no longer ship the software. Like it just, <laughs> we, we couldn't ship, it, it made no sense to work on product because we could not ship the product because things were so broken. Mm -hmm. And so toward the end of the year, I forget which year it was, maybe you know, somewhere in the 2010 to 2012 space, you know, pre-IPO, they spent a few months, you know, at the end of the year, November, December timeframe, and a bunch of engineers got together and worked on, you know, breaking up the monolith that we had, which was this big Java-based monolith, spending a ton of time building real continuous integration and continuous deployment uh, machinery. They set up a system that they called CRT, which was essentially like a continuous integration and deployment dashboard so that every engineer could kind of see their web services, see their builds, that kind of stuff. And then and ferry them from, you know, staging to production, uh, all, all that stuff. So they invested a ton in that area and it really paid off. Um, we were able to ship at will versus this sort of bi-weekly or weekly cadence. We were able to develop independently. We didn't have to just have everything in the monolith. We broke things up into multiple repos. So it made a huge, huge difference. So I think those are kind of the three challenges that are top of mind for me. I'll pause there. <laughs> yeah. Thanks a lot for sharing sort of the details of like these challenges, technical and operational. And you also provide like how LinkedIn actually solved them, right? You know, with the new team members, new executive who institute mandate to make that process easier. Two follow-up questions under your answers. Sure. So you mentioned in your previous part of your answer about that move from Aura to Greenplum to Aster to Hadoop, right? What was some of the main like criteria that your team rely on to adopt a certain technologies during that whole process? Yeah, that's a good question. So the team that was exploring the Aster Data Greenplum space was a data science team or what would become known as a data science team. I forget what we were calling it at the time. It was sort of pre-data science as a name. So the skill set was a little bit different than what you would think of as like an engineering team. And one of the criteria we were initially really looking for was SQL. Like we basically want a SQL, right? And the theory was just that, you know, we have a bunch of people that are not really savvy when it comes to Java, Python, that kind of stuff. They're more in the R and SQL layer at the time. And so initially we were fairly resistant to Hadoop. I wouldn't say resistant so much as just, it was lower on our priority list because of the lack of SQL. This, you know, mind you, this is Hive was sort of like not really fully a thing yet. Pig was there, but, but not super well-known. So it was, it was kind of early for SQL on Hadoop at that point. And so we tried Greenplum and Aster, namely because they were like data warehouses, which analytics people understand, i.e. data scientists understand, and they use SQL, which, you know, data scientists understand. So we started there. The reason we went down the Hadoop 
rabbit hole was really just, we were like forced to like none of the other systems that we were trying were working. <laughs> they just weren't working. And so we kind of ended up with Hadoop. You know, I think in hindsight, that was probably the right philosophy. You know, for several years after that, I would give people the, the guidance that like, essentially don't use Hadoop unless you absolutely have to. Like operationally, it's a nightmare. And even developer experience wise, it was a nightmare at the time. Like it was just a real pain to deal with. So unless, if you can avoid it, you should avoid it, but we couldn't avoid it. Like just the scale of the data we were talking about, the, you know, the address books and the, the entries and the connection entries that we had and stuff were billions, right? And at the time, the, the machines, the hard disk, like we didn't have SAS uh, or SSD disks rather. So things were, you know, much slower than they are now, less memory, everything was more expensive. So really Hadoop was like the mo only real viable option that we had at the time. Yeah. So like by out of necessity, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Unless yeah. You, you have the scalability requirement, then. Yeah, um, exactly. Exactly. And I think in, in now, even you see a lot of people doing graph computation, going back to in memory. I read this really great paper, maybe a few months ago from the Pinterest folks where they had taken, you know, they were, they were doing recommendations. I forget. It was like collaborative filtering or something. People who do this also do that. And they had done it, they have built an in-memory thing using fairly efficient, I forget it was C or C++ or Rust or whatever, but they, they had essentially built a really uh, efficient in-memory thing that ran on a single machine. And I was like, hey, actually, <laughs> you can do that now. You can buy, you know, uh, tons and tons of memory and just stuff it all on the machine. That I think is really a, a pretty viable option now. And it's something that like, you know, going back 15 years was much less viable. We were back on, you know, disks and HDFS and all that. So more options now even than there were back then. Absolutely. And then my second question is, so you mentioned a little bit about the non-existent observability culture mm -hmm. and sort of the messy deployment process, right? For some of the early engineering team, I guess if a startup, you know, building software who like faced with a ton of these operational challenges, what sort of advice would you give them to start adopting best practices in observability and deployment? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. I think one piece of advice I would definitely give for sort of early stage startups is just take something off the shelf and like adopt it. Don't try and build your own thing. <laughs> we had a lot of NIH at LinkedIn, not invented here syndrome. And we, we kind of succeeded in spite of ourselves, not because of a lot of the stuff we did. I think, especially now there's so much out there. The field is well understood when it comes to DevOps, CI, CD, and that kind of thing. And there's just a lot of tools that are actually really fantastic. So just pick something and use it. You know, maybe it's GitLab, <laughs> maybe it's GitHub and GitHub Actions, you know, like whatever it is, CircleCI, Travis, just pick something and use it would be my first piece of guidance. And the, the second thing I would say is, you know, there's a temptation early on when you're building to kind of just build the product, get it out and see, see people using it. Don't neglect the continuous integration and deployment part. Like that's something I think you should invest in because it's actually relatively cheap to do now. Like I, I was, you know, using Vercel recently and like they make it so easy for you to, to build a staging and production, you know, set up. Like it's, it's basically less than five minutes to do this now. You should absolutely do that. So I would say pick something, mm -hmm. use it, don't skip it, but don't try and build your own thing. That would kind of be my suggestion for people just starting out. I see. Yeah. yeah. Buy over bill and then adopt CICD. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. As far as learning, I think you asked also about just sort of like learning best practices and stuff. Google 
the go-to for me is Google. They have a fantastic SRE book that they publish. It's free. You can just like, literally, if you just punch in Google SRE book, you can go and get the PDF of it, or it's also online. Highly recommend that book if you want to, you know, come up to speed quickly. Now for a startup, you know, maybe 50 to 80% of the stuff in there is probably going to be overkill for what you need. But if you're looking to learn and also looking to set yourself up, so as you guys grow, that you, you have the right muscle memory and tissue and, and you know where you're going. I think that book is fantastic. Yeah. I'm happy sure to include okay. that book in the show notes. So listeners can get a chance to dive deeper on. So related to some of the work that you have with the motor development and deployment system for LinkedIn's people, you may know algorithms. You wrote a blog post back in 2018, arguing that models and microservices should be running on the same continuous delivery stack. Have you seen any innovation in the ML infrastructure space? to make that vision a reality? Yeah. So I'll give my best shot at this answer. I haven't been as engaged in this space over the last couple of years as is probably necessary to, to do a great job answering it. But the reason I wrote that post was we were at WePay at the time looking at how we were deploying our ML models into production. And at WePay, a lot of the ML models were uh, about evaluating risk and fraud because we were doing payment processing. Mm-hmm. And two of the posts that I came across that I thought were really interesting, one was from Uber and the other was from Airbnb, where they were talking about the model platforms that they built. And they part of that included you know, deployment and evaluation, essentially getting the model into production, seeing how it was doing, you know, rolling back, you know, kind of not A-B tests, but running splits and seeing how they were performing against controls and stuff. And it was just occurring to me like, man, this looks exactly like microservice deployment. And we already, we have like a decade, two decades worth of machinery and tooling for this stuff already. Why are we not using it for the model deployment stuff? And I think since then, the thing that we landed on at WePay that I thought was fantastic was Kubeflow, which is you know, I'm not super familiar with it, but it, my understanding is it's basically like Kubernetes meets ML platform thingy. And we, we adopted that and that has worked really well, or that worked really well for us at WePay. It allowed us, because we were on our deployment side, you know, pretty heavily integrated with Kubernetes and we were on Google Cloud. So we had GKE. It was like a very natural fit for us. I think there's a ton in this space. I think I've seen some posts, you know, I follow the LinkedIn blog and There was a post from them a while ago about their model deployment that was almost identical to my post where they were talking about using their continuous integration deployment stuff with ML. So there's a lot of movement here. As for specific tools, like I said, I I haven't been engaged enough to be able to to name it. I'm almost certain that there's a bunch of tools out there that will give you you your ML deployment stuff, whether it's GitLab or, or GitHub or whatever, kind of integrate with those CI pipelines. But I'm not familiar with the, the names of them. So I'm, you know, as an aside, I'm not sure how good this answer is going to be. <laughs> but yeah, I give them my best shot. So, you know, maybe I can take a look at some of the, that LinkedIn post and then link it to the show notes for people okay. who are interested in exploring more on this topic. During your first two at LinkedIn, you also perform close to 200 interviews <laughs> to build out the different product and analytics team. How had you improved your interviewing skill throughout that period? Yeah. So... Gosh, that's a funny line. It makes me laugh now because at WePay, it's well over a thousand interviews that I did. Like, it's just so many interviews. I think they don't tell you that when you're in school that, hey, you come out, 
you're gonna have to interview a lot of people if you're lucky, right? If you're at a fast growing company, like that's gonna be a huge amount of your time. And it's really disruptive. Like initially I was super excited about it. I thought, oh, this is so cool. I get to interview people. And then very quickly interview fatigue sets in and you hit this trough. You're like, I hate this. This is just getting in the way. I don't wanna do this. Uh, and eventually I re realized that actually interviewing is one of the highest leverage things you can do as an engineer. Cause like, there are a few things you can do that if you are successful doubles productivity, but if, if you take yourself and you interview and find someone that is, you know, as good or better than you are, you now have two of you. <laughs> so you literally doubled what the company can do. And if you do that again, you now have three of you, right? So like the leverage on hiring is incredibly high, but I think a lot of times engineers get really fixated on the cost of, oh, you know, I'm in the middle. I, it, it's going to take an hour of my day and my context gets reset. And that's true. That's all true. It's going to impact you in the short term, but in the long term, it pays huge, huge dividends. So I kind of came around to it, but it takes some patience and I think mental maturity to kind of get past it. Now, how I improved, a lot of it is practice. And the best way to get practice is to do it. However, to do it, you need guide rails. <laughs> so the best way to get have guide rails is to shadow. And there's kind of two modes that you can shadow. One is you attend an interview with someone else and they're asking the questions and you are kind of just sitting there listening fairly passively. I think you can participate a little bit, but ideally you should really be observing and you should be observing not just the candidate, but also the person asking the questions mm -hmm. and understanding, you know, what they're doing, why they're asking the questions they're asking, what they're asking, so shadowing is key. It helps you calibrate, like, what does a good answer look like? What does a bad answer look like? What should the structure of the interview look like? Stuff like that. The second mode of shadowing is the inverse of this, where you go in, you've shadowed a number of people where you followed, but now you're leading, but you're not leading alone. There's, again, still a guide rail where there is someone that's fairly experienced as an interviewer with you, and they are fairly passively watching and you are asking the questions, but if things go off the rails and really just to give you some comfort, you know, you have someone there that's experienced can step in and help out. They can also give you feedback. So like, Hey, you know, I noticed the candidate said this, you didn't follow up on this area. This would have been really interesting to follow up on, or, you know, make sure you leave enough time for, you know, Q and a at the end. So I think shadowing is really, really important lately. There's also been, well, not lately, I guess. There are some really good posts from Joel Spolsky on engineering. So he, I believe he was the guy that founded Stack Overflow. He has some fantastic blog posts. And now, now they're probably 10 years old or 15 years old even about interviewing and hiring and how you should think about that and how you should think about bringing people into the organization. Mm -hmm. And I think reading, especially his posts is a worthwhile endeavor if you're going to be doing a lot of interviewing. at we pay, um, we kind of took a similar methodology that we had developed at LinkedIn, which itself had been kind of cargo culted from Google. And we really codified it as like a, a real program. And so we had a full on interviewing training program at WePay where there were various modules and you would be qualified for those modules by shadowing as a follower and then a leader. And, and eventually you would kind of become a trainer. And so we built a really robust system at WePay for training people to do interviews. Mm -hmm. And that worked extremely well. And so if to the extent that you can find a company that has a robust interviewing culture, that is a good way to learn. Um, and oftentimes when you're interviewing, 
as a essentially a consumer of the interview product, you can in fact discern whether or not they have a good interview program and whether they've asked good questions and the interviewers are you know good at their job. That is a signal on whether or not you're going to learn to be a good interview at that company. <laughs> so yeah. I think overall, the shadowing was the main thing. Like essentially doing a lot of interviews in a safe environment where you have the help that you need is a good way to do it. Yeah, I see. Definitely a muscle that can be exercised throughout time. Yeah, and I think I should also highlight that like there are different kinds of interviews, and because you're good at one, doesn't mean you're going to be good at the other. So, for example, there's phone screen, and there, there's a very specific objective that you have with a phone screen. There's a very specific way that you structure that phone screen that is different from the way that you would do an onsite. And then with an onsite, you know, there's objectives that you have where you're just trying to evaluate technical expertise. There's objectives where you might be trying to evaluate communication and their ability to kind of talk about the stuff they did in the past to people that maybe don't understand it all that well. There's objectives around design. And so doing a communication and past work interview is very different from doing a design interview, which is itself very different from doing a uh, technical interview. And so some of the former ones I mentioned, comm, design, past work, those are much more freeform. And it, you have to be fairly adept at like, you have to really understand the problem and understand how to guide and like really be able to navigate things. Technical questions, you know, it is a different skill set, but you tend, it tends to be more predictable. You know, there are only so many ways that you can, you know, calculate a square root. And as long as they're not, you know, trying to ke- compute Newton Rabson on the whiteboard, you're probably okay. So I think I would be cautious about overgeneralizing and saying, oh, because I'm good at one module or one way of interviewing, I can do them all. Like you almost have to not start from scratch, but rebuild at least 80% when you try and achieve a different objective in a, in a given interview. I would also say something I haven't had a ton of experience with, but I would wager is very different. Is, are these kind of like extended onsite interviews where they have candidate, like just code with a laptop or pair program or something like that. Again, that's going to be a very different kind of interview from a whiteboard or a one hour, you know, sort of canned, you know, fairly standard interview. Yeah. Yeah. So really like master some of the fundamentals, but be willing to be flexible, right? With yeah. the structure and, and the yeah. specific type of interview. Yeah. So coming back into your career at LinkedIn, uh, in the later phase of your time there, you uh, created Apache Samza, which is LinkedIn's streaming system infrastructure mm-hmm. built on top of Apache Kafka. Could you mind explaining the motivation behind the creation of Samza and discussing its high-level design philosophy? Yeah. So so Samsung is a stream processing system that we built there. And it's important, I think, to understand the context around the time, because now there's like Flink and Dataflow and a bunch of newer, you know, KSQL and and Kafka streams and a bunch of newer systems. At the time, the mainstream processing systems that were out were Spark Streaming and Storm. Those were kind of the two popular systems. And Spark Streaming was kind of this hybrid system where you're using Spark to do both batch and stream processing. It was essentially the same, I don't know what the right word is, compute, upper layer, compute layer. And it was different transport. You know, you might be reading from HDFS or you might be reading from, you know, Kafka or what have you. On the Storm front, they had essentially implemented, this was a, a project that came out of a startup that was eventually acquired, I think by Twitter. And they had used a library called Zero MQ as their transport layer. And so they had sources, I think they call them spouts, that would attach to various external systems. You know, it could be Kafka, it could be RabbitMQ, ActiveMQ, HFS, whatever. 
But then internally for the stream processing, it would all message within itself using zero MQ, which was not a persistent transport layer. And so, you know, you would send messages. It was essentially like a glorified TCP connection, right? When the TCP connection goes down, a lot of the state is lost. The philosophy in theory that we had with SAMSA was when it came to Spark streaming, we thought that trying to marry batch and stream processing was not the right way to go about it. And that we, we believe we probably needed a separate system for stream processing because we already had, you know, Hadoop and MapReduce and stuff. I would say that philosophy has largely borne out to be false and that in fact, marrying stream processing and batch computation on a single computation layer works. Like I think that has kind of borne out to be true with Flink, with Dataflow. And I think the thing we got wrong was that what we were seeing was a lot of batch systems try and convert themselves to streaming. But I think the right way to do it, which is eventually, I think, the model that's won over is essentially to look at everything as a streaming system and actually look at batched data source, i.e. HDFS or a table in a data warehouse as just a finite stream that you could you know, process versus an infinite stream. But anyway, at the time, our philosophy was, hey, we, we need a stream processing system independent of you know, the MapReduce layer that we have, the Hive layer that we have in Hadoop. And we don't think that having a single system like Spark is the right way to go. And so that was sort of the argument versus Spark and Spark streaming. When it came to Storm, the argument was, we don't believe that having an internal transport layer is correct. And that if you simply leverage a lot of the features that a robust messaging system gives you, i.e. Kafka, you can build a much simpler and better stream processing system. And I think we were right on that front. So the philosophy for SAMSA was we're not going to have our own internal transport layer, like zero MQ, we're just going to use Kafka for messaging between each and every operator in the stream processing flow, the DAG, if you will. And that was a good decision. And one that I think most systems now use, whether that's KSQL or, or what have you. The reason that was a good decision is because it meant that we could offload a lot of the transactionality, transaction management, state management, all the hard stuff we could offload to the transport layer, to Kafka. And, and Kafka was built in a way that really made supporting those features nice. Specifically, it has a feature called log compaction, which essentially means that you can kind of treat the Kafka topic as a key value store where uh, you can append to a log the same way that you normally would, but you can provide keys. And essentially what you will get for a given key when you read it is only the latest message. And it's not like a point lookup, like you can you know, call get key and retrieve the value, but it just means that the Kafka topic over time will compact out or delete the older messages that have the same key as newer messages. And so it kind of starts to look a little more key value-y, which is great for state management, for counting things, for checkpointing stuff. And so we leverage that heavily in SAMSA. Same deal with the transactionality, which Kafka added as a feature a few years back, idempotent producers and such which meant that the stream processing operators could create transactions and have exactly once messaging. And we didn't have to implement that in SAMHSA. That was something that just came with the transport layer. So that was sort of the philosophy and high level thinking around it. As far as architecture goes, it was fairly simple. It wasn't that much code initially. It was like 10 or 20,000 lines of code. And it provided an API, like a developer API that looked a lot like MapReduce. You got a message in and you had a collector and you could send messages out to that collector. 
the orchestration layer, the deployment stuff was something that we got wrong and learned from with Kafka Streams and KSQL. So it's, with Samza, we tied it heavily to Yarn, which was the Hadoop deployment scheduler at the time. Um, and we did that because we were heavy Yarn users at LinkedIn and had a lot of Hadoop. This was all pre-Kubernetes, I should say. So the other option we had at the time was like Mesos. And so we looked at Mesos, we looked at Yarn, we eventually picked Yarn. The problem with that, and I think it really limited the success of the project, was that not many people were using Yarn. So if you weren't a Hadoop shop, i.e. if you were a fairly small company, you would have to install Yarn to use Samza. What we should have done and what KSQL and Kafka Streams later did was build it as a library. And so by building it as a library, you would allow the organizations and companies to adopt it and drop it into whatever existing orchestration mechanism they had. Maybe it's a Docker container, maybe it's Yarn, maybe it's Mesos, maybe it's Kubernetes, maybe they're just using Puppet or you know something like that, Chef or whatever to, to deploy. All of those are compatible with a library <laughs> with like a main method, but we didn't do that. And I think that limited the growth of the project a bit. Mm. So that was the orchestration portion of it. And then I already mentioned transport, which is essentially the messaging part was just Kafka. And in theory, we made it pluggable. It was one of those leaky abstractions where there was a system, we call it system consumer and system producer. And then we had a Kafka implementation for each of those. So in, in Spark parlance, this would be the spout and the sink. And we did em- end up implementing like an HDFS consumer. And even I think they now have like an Azure and Kinesis consumer, but I don't know how functional those are compared to the Kafka one, because we, we ended up relying so heavily on the functionality of Kafka, namely the log compaction and transactionality stuff that, you know, I think probably what you would end up needing to do is having like maybe a Kinesis system consumer that reads in the messages initially, but then everything from there on is, is messaging over Kafka in order to get the transactions and stuff. So the transport layer was a little bit of a leaky uh, abstraction, but kind of by design, like I mentioned, philosophically, we really believed that Kafka as transport made a lot of sense. So yeah, I hope that answers the question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think like the need for a streaming system outside of the batch from Hadoop. And then you talk about after evaluating both Storm's batch streaming and Fling, those doesn't need the requirement for LinkedIn. And that sort of sparked the idea for Samza that I really rely upon the Kafka native languages. And then, yeah, thanks for sharing some of the sure. details regarding the architecture as well. Actually, you have given us a speech at QCon 2013, right? About yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So I can probably include that in the show notes for anyone who wants to learn more about some of the uh, architectural angle of Samza. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, spe- that talk, I think also does a fairly good job of covering like just stream processing in general and the problems that you face. And so I would say it's still actually pretty valuable for understanding stream processing today, whether it's Flink or Dataflow or whatever. Yeah. And actually, just one note before we move on to the next question, which is, so you mentioned because you didn't implement it as a library, that limit adoption of Samza mm-hmm. within the broader LinkedIn organization, right? So this concept of adoption of internal project and later on, Samza actually got open sources. So it go outside of just LinkedIn, but also like to the, the broader tech industry. What, what are some of the lessons you learned from evangelizing open source project? Oh, that's a good question. The way that we went about it, I think was largely the right way. So we did a bunch of presentations at a bunch of different companies, both companies that would adopt it and also companies that would contribute it to it. So Hortonworks and Cloudera were two of the big ones at the time that we talked with. But then we also went around and talked to like Netflix and you know companies like that and startups as well. So we got the word out, I think, pretty well. So there is value in doing you know meetups, talks, presentations, 
videos and stuff like that to get the word out. Um, I think the higher leverage and kind of cheaper thing to do is actually to do blog posts. So we did that as well. The third thing you can do is paper writing. It's kind of higher, probably the, I would say the least valuable cost to benefit, unless you have something truly novel, but we did that as well. So promoting the project is important, but I think getting back to what I was saying earlier about growth, it's only going to get you so far. Like fundamentally you have to meet your customers where they are. And even if you're doing open source, there are customers, the people that want to use your stuff or should use your stuff are your customers. And so making it easy for them to like use the system is really important. Use the software. So that's documentation. That's hello worlds and demos and all that kind of stuff. That's being responsive to questions and feedback and stuff. I think that was, again, really the area where we could have done better looking at what people were doing and how they were deploying systems and trying to make it easy for them to adopt our stuff coming out and saying, you need to use yarn. You know, we tried to make it easy for them to use yarn, but like, still it like, that's a tall order. I think that was something that I learned that, that I really pay attention to. I would say the other thing that I learned was philosophically, I initially was very, very committed to like responding to every single person I could when they had a question, when they needed help, when they submitted a pull request and to doing sort of what I would, you know, consider to be an A quality response, A quality answer, really putting in effort on everything. And that works when the project is fairly small, but it's not scalable. (laughs) And so you have to get to a point where you are comfortable ignoring or load shedding some of the things that are lower value because there are only so many hours in a day. And I found myself getting stretched really thin Mm -hmm. because, you know, if I was spending an hour writing, you know, a multi-page response on a mailing list question, and I was doing four of those, suddenly that's four hours a day that I'm burning up. And so you really need to, as an open source contributor and maintainer, you, you need to learn to get comfortable, especially if it's successful with not doing a great job all the time on everything and really picking your battles and where you're going to spend your time. That was definitely something that I learned in the open source world. Yeah. Yeah. I think that advice is really applicable to a lot of data startup these days who start out as open source project and try to... Yeah. It's a trap because especially for myself, what I would tell myself is, hey, I always hate it when I submit a pull request and don't get a response. I hate it when I try and I ask a question or when something gets stuff, I really don't like that experience. And I don't want people to have that experience with me. Right. Yeah. And, and so you go down this path with a very, you know, reasonable and, you know, good moral kind of commitment, but it leads you to a place where you just get wrecked. <laughs> and so you, like the outcome is not good. And so you, you really kind of have to learn the discipline of saying, okay, this is a question I don't have time for. This is a question. This is someone who hasn't spent enough time looking in the, at the documentation and being okay with not doing a great job and not providing a level service all the time to everybody for free. <laughs> like it just doesn't work. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Curious. Do you still pay attention to, to Samza these days? Other process? Not a lot. One of the reasons I kind of backed away from Samza is I could see it's just the space was getting really crowded. And I was like, do I really need to be here doing this? Or are there other people that are just as capable also doing this? You know, Flink came on the scene and then Confluent created KSQL and Kafka Streams and Kafka Connect. 
and data flow. And there's just more and more of these stream processing systems. And so at a certain point, I just decided, eh, I think I might want to spend my time elsewhere. So I don't spend a ton of time with it anymore. I've heard that LinkedIn has, you know, tens of thousands of processors running on it and stuff. So they're still invested pretty heavily in it. And I think they still use it. And I think there's some other companies out there still using it, but I don't pay that much attention to it. The other thing I'll say that was, I think, kind of to our detriment was because Samza was fairly simple. Like I said, it was just 10 to 20,000 lines of code initially kind of did its thing. It was pretty reliable. Like people didn't really talk about it all that much. Like it would just adopt it in their organization. And then that was it. And it would kind of just run and do its thing. So at one point, you know, Slack was using it at one point, Uber was using it at one point, a couple other companies were using it as well. They're slipping my mind, you know, Expedia maybe. And just nobody was really talking about, about it. And I didn't even know, like there were no mailing list questions from the Slack people or the Uber people or anything. And so I think, you know, getting back to your lessons learned, I would definitely probably have made more of an effort to evangelize who was using it and just to find out like, hey, who has adopted this and who's using it? Because it, it's one of those things where when the thing doesn't work, you can actually see on the Slack or the mailing list, like the domains of the people asking questions. But when there are no questions to be asked, you suddenly don't know who's using it. So long story short, yeah, I don't, I don't pay that much attention to it anymore, but it's still alive and kicking. And we will touch by you on sort of a landscape to your point about crowd landscape of these yeah. streaming tools later on in our conversation. Yeah, that's a recurring um, theme, I think, across all of data right now. <laughs> Circling back into your career, in 2015, you joined the data infrastructure team at WePay as a principal software engineer. Why did you decide to make this career transition? Excellent question. So, you know, I had been at LinkedIn for uh, about six and a half years at the time that I left to go to WePay. And so there's sort of a bunch of questions rolled up in here. One is like, when do you want to leave your company that you're working at and why? The second is, where do you want to go and why, right? They're somewhat joint, intertwined and somewhat not. So the main reason I decided to leave LinkedIn when I did was I felt like I had become too much of a specialist and I wanted to get back to you know, doing more breadth, being involved in more things. When I joined LinkedIn, it was about 300 people. You know, I was on the data science team, but I could do, you know, what would be considered, I think now like data engineering, analytics, engineering, ML engineering kind of stuff. I could also, you know, I got involved in inversion. So I could do a developer tools, developer platform stuff. I could build a web service for who view my profile and, and essentially do application engineering, application development stuff. And that was all of the course of like two years. Right. But of course, as a company grows, they hire more. And what do they hire? They hire specialists. So people that are very good at running databases or people that are very good at building web services or people that are very good at developer tools. And so to survive in that environment, you are also forced to specialize. And what I ended up specializing in was infrastructure and then data infrastructure and then SAMHSA, right? And so I got to the point where I, you know, I was reading a lot of PhD, postdoc, stream processing papers. I was spending all my time on SAMHSA. So very hyper-focused on this one area. And I wanted to get back to breadth and working on a lot of different things just to develop skill set. One of the things at the time I wanted to learn was cloud. LinkedIn was nowhere on the cloud landscape. We were still running our own data centers. We were building our own equivalent to Docker rather than adopting Docker, you know, building our own equivalent to Kubernetes rather than adopting Kubernetes. And it just wasn't the right place for me to learn that kind of stuff. So Taking a step back, the way that I think about this now is, you know, borrowing from another 
discipline in fitness. They have this concept of base building, and then they have a concept of specificity or peaking. So in base building, you're doing a wide array of exercise just to build a lot of different skill sets, cardiovascular, muscular, you know, strength, endurance, like stuff like that. And then as you have a specific goal, for example, you want to get really strong or you want to run a marathon, you start to peak. And so you start to limit the breadth of what you're doing and focus specifically on the goal at hand and doing things that only contribute to that one goal. And so I felt like for the last few years at LinkedIn, I had really gone toward the peaking part of this metaphor and done a lot of very specific stream processing things. And I wanted to get back to base building and exploring a wide array of technologies and really learning again and growing. So that was kind of why I decided to leave. And then the second part of it is deciding where to go. And the way that I thought about it, I borrowed from a friend of mine who worked at LinkedIn for a number of years with me. Her name is Monica Rigotti, data scientist. And of course, the way that she th- thinks about this problem is very data science which is she says, hey, you know, you should think about this as sort of a weighted average where you take all the things you care about and then for each individual job offer, you kind of assign a score for each one of the things you care about. And then you sum it all up. And the thing with the highest sum is the job that you should go to, right? So you might care about the location. You might care about the social impact your job has. You might care about money. You might care about growth opportunities. You might care about the vertical they're in. Are they in payments or are they in you know, transportation or are they in whatever? So there's like a wide, wide array of things that you can care about. And I, I don't often think people think about that. They usually get fixated on like, ah, I need to learn Haskell, or I want to go to a company that does X, you know, that has this tech stack, or I want to go to, you know, to a company that is involved in this specific thing. There's actually a lot of stuff that contributes towards, I think, happiness at a job, the team that you work with, the culture, the vertical, all that kind of stuff. And so it's important to think, I think, holistically. And so for me, when I looked at WePay, and really the dimensions I cared about were, you know, I wanted to learn cloud. I wanted to be able to contribute to a wide array of different things at the company breadth. I wanted to work with friends, people I knew. I wanted to, you know, work with a company with a good culture. And I wanted to, I kind of wanted to prove that I could do something as a leader rather than a follower. A lot of what I had done at LinkedIn was like working with a mentor on the technical side and sort of executing their vision. So that person for me in the later days was Jay Kreps, who went on to found Confluent. And he really mentored me and worked with me on SAMHSA and helped you know form a lot of the vision. And I basically wanted to take what I had learned and apply it myself without anybody helping me. And so that set of things, I think WePay afforded me that opportunity. And so it seemed very, the score that it spit out was pretty high. <laughs> and so that's kind of how I ended up at WePay. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I thought about the transition. Absolutely. And yeah, Monica Rocati is a very famous person in the data community. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> the Edison's hierarchy of NIST blog post. I think everyone in the field probably read that post. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, her hierarchy of the Maslow. Everybody's got to have a Maslow these days. <laughs> yeah. And to your point about sort of choosing we pay to work, you actually written this blog post that I also included in the show notes on your website that said choosing where to work like in yeah. 2017 that you kind of highlight some of the things that you already just given your answer, like, you know, prioritizing people and learning and thinking about company size, choose the dimension accordingly. Yeah. I think one dimension in particular that I think is nuanced that I would highlight, and I think I talk about it in that article as well, is, is this concept of impact. So, you know, I think there's two different ways to think about the impact that you have. And people, a lot of engineers care about the impact that they have. One way to think about impact is the sort of overall absolute impact you have on society. 
And the other is the impact that you have in the organization, you know, in the specific company that you're working at, right? And working at a huge company, I think the example I give is like, you know, you're at Google and your job is to change a button from red to blue. And that change results in a 0.5% increase in engagement on that button. Well, because there are a billion people interacting with that button, you have made a substantial impact, you know, in the world, right? But it doesn't feel like you've made an impact, <laughs> right? You change a button from red to blue. Nobody really cares. There's like a lot of other stuff going on. It's a really big organization. You know, you move on with your life. Some people like that form of impact, but there's another form, which is more like, you know, within the company, more visible. It's more tangible to you personally. And that is like, you know, you're at a startup, basically the inverse, you're at a startup and, you know, you help get the first customer onboarded, Right. Have you made a huge impact to the world? You know, probably not, but it's very tangible. It's very visible. You can feel it. You can see it. You're directly in contact with the people that you've helped. It's an emotional, rewarding experience. You know, obviously if you help the startup be successful and it goes on to be, you know, a multi-billion dollar company and changes the world, sure. But in a more immediate sense, the impact is a very different kind of impact that you have. And they're both, I think, neither one is wrong or right or better or worse, but some people thrive in an environment in the first scenario. And so people thrive in an environment in the second scenario and knowing where you want, what kind of impact you want to have, I think is really important. Yeah. I think the latter part is really about that personal equity that you can gain from being in a small environment and mm-hmm. the proportion of your work, right? Mm-hmm. So on your larger scheme of thing. So we pay. So you join the data infrastructure team. Uh, in particular, you have set up, we pay's data warehouse, data pipeline, and data interaction system. By adopting a variety of technologies such as Airflow, BigQuery, Kafka, and Debezium. So can you briefly share the technical details behind the evolution of WePay's data infrastructure throughout your timeline? Yeah, uh, I don't know about briefly, but I can <laughs> I can uh, take a shot at explaining the technical details. So I would say actually first, you know, back to my breadth point, when I joined WePay, I spent the first year not on data infrastructure at all. I spent the time on helping them build out their service infrastructure stack. They were a monolith at the time. They wanted to move to service-based SOA, uh, microservice architecture. And so the first year I built one of their first web services, which was a settlement service. So settling money into bank accounts. So it had essentially you know, not a lot to do with data infrastructure, although processing payments is in a lot of ways similar to data infrastructure. But when I got onto the data infrastructure side of the, the house about a year in, WePay's data warehouse, quote unquote, was just replica microservice instance. So it was kind of like LinkedIn back in the early days where they didn't have a data warehouse. They just had a a OLTP database they had repurposed as their data warehouse. And that actually worked pretty well for the company at the time. There just weren't that many people. They got access to all the data, but because they were growing and because their security and compliance needs were evolving, you know, Multi-tenancy became an issue with MySQL. The amount of data became an issue. Governing who got access to what became an issue. And so we started to look at building out a, a real data warehouse that we could you know, build data products on, that we could build reporting on, and, and so on. And so the first version that we rolled out was Airflow and BigQuery, those two pieces of technology. We arrived at BigQuery because we were on Google Cloud and it was the shortest path to a reasonable data warehouse. Turned out we were really lucky because BigQuery is a great piece of technology and it's just fantastic. And on the Airflow side of things, you know, 
essentially I knew we needed some kind of orchestrator to do the ETL or ELT as, as we were doing. And I knew I didn't want to use Azkaban. It was sort of not the healthiest project. It was written in Java. It was kind of clunky to deal with. And so I kind of went and looked around at what I could find. You know, I looked at, I think Luigi, which is from Spotify, which Eric Bernardson worked on. And then I looked at Airflow from Maxime and, and Airbnb and maybe two other, a couple other ones uh, that are escaping my mind now. And frankly, what drew me to Airflow were two characteristics. One of them was that it was written in Python. And when I interacted with, when I used Azkaban at LinkedIn, there was like widespread agreement that if we ever redid this, we would do it in Python. <laughs> Using Java as an orchestrator, like the language and the, the JVM are, were just not really set up to do, like technology-wise, not set up well to do orchestration. Like forking processes was really expensive because you copy the whole JVM in memory and just a lot of stuff happened. Because the JVM tried to hide the OS, doing a lot of like shell-based stuff was kind of clunky. So the fact that Airflow was written in Python was really appealing to me. And then secondly, somewhat superficially, but I think part of the reason it's so successful was the UI was great. Like the UI was just really attractive compared to everything else that was out there. So we picked that up and I spent a couple of weeks doing the, essentially the GCP integrations for Airflow. So Google Cloud Storage, BigQuery, MySQL, stuff like that. And the reason that we went this way, like why did we not go straight streaming from the beginning, which I, I knew was always the goal for us. I knew that's what we wanted for a number of reasons, but I knew that was going to be really expensive, take a long time. And just organizationally, we had like two SREs and the idea that we were like going to run Kafka, run, you know, KCBQ, run this alpha version of Debezium at the time. It's just untenable. And so I thought, okay, let's establish a beachhead. Let's build a very basic data pipeline get it up and running quickly, show value, and then we can buy time to do the thing I actually want to do. And so I ended up getting Airflow up and running in like a month, maybe with the data pipeline, with a lot of the core tables loaded into BigQuery. And that pipeline ran, I don't know, for four or five years for the monolithic data and really afforded us the ability to build the second version of the data warehouse, which is what I always knew I wanted to build. And so that second version, which we probably started rolling out in 2018, uh, 2019, this is maybe you know two or three years into my stint at WePay. The second version was Debezium as the source connector. And for those that aren't aware, Debezium is a open source project that lets you attach to your relational databases replication feeds. So in MySQL, that's something called a bin log. In Postgres, I forget, I think, I think they call it the wall, the write ahead log. But essentially it's, it's the stream of changes that your database is seeing. And so Debezium will consume these changes as pretending to be a replica of MySQL, but in fact is funneling the messages into Kafka as a series of insert, update, and delete messages. And so we would use Debezium to get the data from our OLTP systems into Kafka. And then we would use another connector that we actually wrote at WePay called KCBQ, which stands for Kafka Connect BigQuery, mm -hmm. that would load data from Kafka into BigQuery. Mm -hmm. So that was essentially the extract and load portion of the pipeline on our second version of the data pipe. Once the data was in BigQuery, we would build a bunch of views that would kind of transform, munge, deduplicate, filter the raw messages that we were loading from Kafka into BigQuery. 
and present them as a table or a view that looked like the source table in MySQL. And that's what the developers and engineers and application engineers and data scientists and product managers, that's what everybody would query. And so that was what our data pipe ended up looking like. Along with this, from the very beginning, the thing I invested in heavily that I learned from Jay and the Kafka team at LinkedIn was data quality checks. So with Kafka at LinkedIn, you know, they built it, they rolled it out and they had no data quality checks. And so messages would just disappear and they wouldn't know. And what they did was they built essentially a little counter on the consumer side and a little counter on the producer side, and they would just see if the counts matched. And when they didn't match, they would say, oh, there were some messages last year. We need to go debug this and figure out why. So once they hooked up that monitoring and measurement and observability stuff, it was like a sea change in the way that they thought about what they were working on and, and how to fix things. And so a lesson learned there for me was like invest in data quality early because no pipeline is going to work properly all the time. So if you don't measure and check that your data is as it should be, you will absolutely always lose data. Like it's just going to happen. So you have to measure it. So when I did that M0 or first version data pipe, the airflow and BigQuery setup, mm -hmm. in addition to writing the ETL pipe, sort of in tandem with that, the raw extract and loads, I put in data quality checks and really my team at this point, because toward the end of this, we had built out, it was more than just me. We put in a bunch of data quality checks that would do two things. One was count the number of rows in table A in MySQL, count the number of rows in table A in BigQuery. Do they match? If they don't match, there's data missing. What's going on here? Yeah. And you have to be slightly more nuanced than that because there's obviously a delay between when data gets to MySQL and when it gets to BigQuery. But that was the raw logic. The second thing that we did was we did actual row by row, column by column checks on a sort of infinite just loop. What we would do is we would take a sliver of a table A, for example, we say maybe rows zero to 1000 for primary key ID. And then we would take rows zero to 1000 in BigQuery for the primary key ID. And then we would go row by row, column by column and look that everything was identical. This is very naive. What we probably should have done. And I think we were looking at toward the end was actually just checksumming and doing something like a Merkle tree. There's a very good blog post from a fellow. The blog is called, I think like napkin problems or something where they talk about this, essentially talk about using Merkle trees and checksums to do quality checks. But the idea here is you just want to check that the data is identical between system A and system B. So those were the two data quality checks that we implemented. And we got six years of mileage out of those data quality checks. And they found tons and tons of bugs, tons and tons of inconsistencies and let us know when things were wrong. So that was something we did early on. That was a lesson I learned at LinkedIn that paid huge dividends. And that now I think you're seeing a lot of this in industry, you're seeing Monte Carlo and, and Great Expectations and Anomalo and on and on. I'm sure I'm forgetting. There's you know five, six, seven of these companies out there now that provide DQ checks for your data pipes and ML stuff. Yeah. So yeah, like I said, not going to be a brief answer, but that's my answer on the the data infrastructure evolution. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this data quality check is basically it's almost like unit test to catch the data box right before they make it to those. Right? I think there's two ways to think about it. One is like a unit test. And I think this is something that a system like Great Expectations is pretty good at, where you essentially define or auto-derive a set of heuristics. Like, I believe this table should have a cardinality of 200, you know, however many countries are in the world. That's the unique cardinality you should have for this particular column, right? 
if it's say a, a country. Um, and so those are more like static, rigidly defined. Mm-hmm. And I think that's more like a unit test style of thing. You go out as a developer and you define what you believe is a, an invariant, and then you go and check that invariant. The second way to think about data quality checks, which is something that I think is really interesting and that we didn't do as much of at WePay, is using machine learning to kind of automatically detect anomalies in the data. Mm-hmm. And the way that this would look for my example is, is rather than coming out and defining that you believe the cardinality should be 255 or 260 for a given column, the ML system just looks at the cardinality of that column. And then if it changes in a weird way over time, like maybe for the last hundred days, the cardinality has been between 200 and 300, but now it's 10,000 it will alert you and be like, Hey, there's an anomaly here. Like this was, you know, between two and 300, but now it's like way outside the bounds of what it has been. That style is really interesting to me because in particular you can do event detection as well. So the example I gave where we were comparing the count in MySQL to the count in BigQuery, that works well because we have a source database to work against, but in systems where you don't necessarily have that, especially like event-based systems or, or things where there's no real upstream source of truth, there's just like senders or publishers, you kind of don't have any place you can go to do a select count star. <laughs> and so doing these sort of ML-based approach, I think also has a place. And that's more of like what, what the company Anomalo is doing, which disclaimer is a company that I have a relationship with. And I think, so there's sort of this spectrum and there's a place for both, but I think yeah, data quality is something that's really important. And I think, unfortunately, overlooked a lot. <laughs> yeah, definitely. One quick point, as you talk about that adoption of Airflow at WePay, and in fact, you, you pretty much talk a lot about like how you know Airflow is being adopted there as well. You actually also sit in the project committee for Apache Airflow. Mm-hmm. And you know I'm sure that you have a say on how that open source project is evolved you know, over time. Yeah, like these days, there's a lot of, you know, debate or dialogue regarding pros and cons of using Apple. Can you uh, share maybe some insider's perspective regarding project spirit as an user, as a, yeah. as a committer, and as a yeah. someone who have a say on how the project had developed? Absolutely. So two disclaimers to my answer. First one is I haven't been actively involved with the Airflow project for a couple years now. You know, mm-hmm. we're still heavy users of it at WePay. And up until last year, it was like our orchestration layer that we use all the time, but I hadn't been as involved in the project, say, since about 2018, 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second disclaimer is I have a relationship with Prefect, which is a sort of competing workflow orchestration layer engine. That said, I can definitely take a crack at the answer. So when I started working on Airflow, it was a, it was a fairly young project. It was not part of Apache. Uh, Maxime was kind of the guy, he was the author and kind of the guy that was running the show there. And it was not like a project I had ever worked with before. And I think the style of development and, and culture that Max comes from at Air, maybe less so at Airbnb, but also from Facebook was like very fast, very iterative development. And so it really knocked my socks off when I started working with Airflow, how fast it changed and how much contribution and activity there was on the project, just the raw number of pull requests coming in and getting merged on a given day was like bonkers to me. It was just crazy. You know, 10, 20, 30, 40 PRs in a given day coming in and stuff. So there was a ton of just activity on the project. Mm -hmm. Uh, That made it very chaotic. And I think with that chaos came a level of instability in the early days of Airflow. So this is the scheduler didn't work. Sometimes you'd hit these weird bugs 
And so you would have to spend a lot of your time debugging, figuring out how to get things to work, figuring out why the scheduler wasn't running a given task. Like you'd have to go into the scheduler logs and figure out why a task was getting skipped and stuff. So things were often broken. And then there were a lot of releases. So you'd upgrade and that would fix one broken thing, but another thing would get broken. We kind of got to a point in Airflow in the, the 1.10 range at WePay where we kind of just stopped upgrading and we started cherry picking. So we kind of froze at, I forget what the version number, 110 something, and just began cherry picking in the commits that we needed. So I wouldn't say it was a fork, but it was sort of like this degenerate old version of Airflow with a few features we had pulled in. And, you know, there was pretty widespread community consensus that on a number of features that needed to get done but a lot of them were backwards incompatible. And so the Airflow 2.0 stuff started happening about the time I bowed out of the project and started getting less involved with it. But the 2.x stuff added a lot of things that I was you know, wishing we had. So robust, restful interface, tighter integration with Kubernetes, stuff like that. More robust scheduler, more scalable scheduler. So we never really got to 2.0. But when I look at the landscape now, if I were starting from scratch and I were like trying to figure out what to use for an orchestrator, you know, there's Airflow, there's Prefect, there's Dagster, you know, maybe I'm forgetting one or two other ones, but Airflow is sort of like the, nobody ever gets fired for adopting Airflow technology. Like it's going to work. It's pretty widespread. You're going to be able to hire engineers that know and can use Airflow. So there's like, you know, fairly low level of risk involved in adopting it. I think the... Prefect stuff is a little more focused on like the Dask world and some of the data processing stuff that goes on there. It's also, I think, orchestration and SaaS wise has a little bit more of a robust mm-hmm. hosting offering. Although like GCP, for example, has adopted Airflow. So there's a lot of choices. I think that the Dagster folks have a really interesting point of view. They just rolled out on what they call SDA, Software Defined Assets, which is something I think is really compelling and interesting where they essentially say, hey, you know, developers shouldn't be defining DAGs. They should just be more declarative. Like, here's what I want. Let the system derive the DAG. So they, you know, for example, whether it's DBT or gosh, they had one other one aside from DBT. I forget what it was, where you essentially just give it your DBT stuff and it automatically derives the DAG for you. So it's sort of like a little bit of like a logical versus physical compiler in some sense. but yeah, those are kind of the three ones I would look at. The thing I have no experience with is Airflow 2. So I can't tell you how great it is to use because we got stuck on 110 and the upgrade for us was going to be prohibitively expensive to go from 110 to 2 versus the value it was going to provide. So we just never got there mm-hmm. at WePay. But if I were starting from scratch, I would essentially look at Airflow 2, Prefect, and Dagster and play around with them. The other thing that Prefect ushered in, I think Dexter adopted, and now Airflow has adopted as well, is sort of a much more idiomatic Python language. So versus having to define the full DAG and upstream and downstream and stuff, you can do more like Python annotations and write stuff that looks a lot more like just normal Python and then have it kind of stitch together stuff in the background. So that I think is really positive that was in Airflow 2. I don't think it's in Airflow 1, but yeah. Yeah, workflow orchestration is definitely an exciting space that warranted a lot of attention. And I think this company called Astronomer that came out of the Airflow project. Yeah, and they just got a whole bunch of funding, right, on the, on the Airflow space. And they've been alive and kicking for a long time. They were 
you know, back in the early days in contact with me, I did like a podcast with them at one point and they hired, they did a, a smart thing, which is they went out and hired a bunch of the contributors to Airflow. So Coxel and I forget the guy's name, Jeff or something. The guy that did the Kubernetes Airflow integration initially, who was at Bloomberg, I think they hired him as well. They hired a guy named Bolka de Bruin, who I worked with on Airflow from ING. So they really built out a robust team at Astronomer to kind of be the company for Airflow. So on the Prefect side of things, like Jeremiah was also a contributor on Airflow. And I think when he built Prefect, it was to address essentially a lot of the gaps in the Airflow 1 architecture that you see. I think since then, they've come up with a lot of interesting philosophies around, you know, that they call negative engineering and, and trying to provide a positive developer experience for orchestration. They've got this new orchestration engine called Orion. So there's a lot going on in this space. It's pretty neat. <laughs> For sure. And I interviewed Jeremiah before and definitely... Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, you mentioned that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you definitely see that episode for all things Prefect. Absolutely. Um, I would also say that orchestration has a fairly tight coupling with lineage that wasn't immediately obvious to me, but there's this whole subset of data processing around lineage, which is essentially tracking where the data came from and where it goes to, which mm -hmm. when you think about it, of course, if you're doing ETL, the operators are like creating data reading data and writing data. So it's going to know where it's reading and writing from. And so I've seen a lot more synergy and sort of integration there than I had initially suspected. And lineage is something that's important for compliance. It's important for you know, operations and a bunch of other stuff as well. So, Yeah, kind of moving on from one Apache project to another. You actually have written quite a bit about the power of Apache Kafka from how Kafka change data capture can break mm -hmm. database encapsulation to how Kafka can provide data portability and infrastructure agility. And, and note here that you have worked with Kafka, both at LinkedIn and WePay. So what are some of the fundamental design principles that make Kafka such powerful technology? Oh, yeah. So I think there's sort of two parts to this. I'll start architecturally in an organization first. There's this concept of... This is an old concept, the concept of an enterprise service bus, which is like going way back 20 something years. And it's sort of this integration layer where you take all these different systems and you have this bus, as they call it, that you plug everything into and the data can go back and forth between the various systems. You know, I would say really before Kafka, the problem with that architecture was that there wasn't a technology that could really do it, could scale, could provide the low latency, could provide the durability necessary to do it. There's companies like Tibco that were trying to do this and stuff, just varying degrees of success, but there wasn't really, architecture is not widely adopted, I think mostly because the technology couldn't handle it. Now, I think with Kafka, the thing that it did that really made it work well was it, it kind of married a traditional log aggregation system. So this is like Flume or Scribe. This is taking like application logs that you want to take from your web heads and getting them wherever they need to be. I married that set of systems with more of a pub sub, you know, message queue kind of a system so that you could do a little bit of both in the architecture. And it, it did it in a way that was durable, that allowed you to fast forward and rewind. So the design decisions that were made to support this, I think were number one, it, you know, the topics were partitioned, so it could scale out, you know, horizontally. The topics were also durable, which is not always an obvious decision to make. So essentially the records would be persisted for a tunable amount of time. So if I send a message to Kafka, it will sit in the write ahead log for the partition it's written to for a period of time. And that time is configurable. So you can say, I want to hold these messages for two weeks, two months, 
two gigs. So it's either size or time-based. But what that allowed you to do as a consumer was to go back and forth in the log and to fall behind. Like it was okay to not be able to catch up. It also meant that you could almost kind of batch process messages because you could say like, my consumer is going to start up every hour and read all the messages up to the head of the topic. And then it's going to shut down again. And then it's going to do this again, every hour over and over again. That style, that implementation is actually how we initially got Kafka messages into Hadoop. We had a MapReduce job, a mapper that would spin up and it would read messages from Kafka, write them to HDFS and then shut down. And then Azkaban would trigger it again, 15 minutes later, right? So having the flexibility to go back and forward in time, to have messages be durable, to have messages be partitioned was really important. I think the other thing that it did well was this building the concept of consumer groups. So you could have multiple consumers all reading messages independently of each other. So, you know, consumer group A would be guaranteed to see a given message only once, but consumer group B could come in independently and read when and where it wanted to and see the messages as it saw fit. So it had a fairly nice consumer group model that I think you know, again, was scalable, it supported partitioning and, and rebalancing and stuff. So if one of the consumers died, it would rebalance over. So it, it got a lot of that stuff right, I think. So I think those are sort of the features that it implemented well. In terms of like concrete, you know, implementation details, just adopting the write-ahead log, you know, like at the time we were still on spinning disks, being able to write stuff in a, not in a binary tree, the way something like active MQ might do just to be able to like append stuff over and over again to a file with essentially no management other than that meant it could go really fast. And so, you know, we had these kind of comical performance charts that Jay and Neha and June, the, the Kafka team at LinkedIn had done where they would have a scalability chart and they would have like Kafka showing how it scaled pretty linearly. And then they would just have a little spec for active MQ where it like literally would just fall over <laughs> after a certain amount of time. So it's just apples and oranges kind of comparison when it came to scalability. Yeah. Those are some of the things that I think made a big difference in allowing it to fill this enterprise service bus promise that was kind of missing. Yeah. Given some of your involvement later on with Confluent, I suppose the trajectory of Kafka even become better to address some of those enterprise needs, right? Yeah, exactly. Especially on the operations front, you know, Kafka is a hard system to run. And so mm-hmm. being able to either adopt something like Confluent Cloud or, you know, AKS, essentially a cloud-hosted Kafka, or just to get a dashboard. Like Confluent is a very nice, robust dashboard that we use that we pay that like didn't exist at LinkedIn. It was kind of brutal to manage without. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for sharing all the details regarding some of that technical and architectural, you know, information regarding the adoption of these uh, source technologies. You bid farewell to WePay at the end of 2021. What could you say to be your proudest accomplishment there? Yeah, this is an easy one. I'm really proud of the team, especially the engineering team that we built at WePay. You know, I mentioned earlier interviewing and the sort of interview training system that we built. And I think that program really paid a ton of dividends when it came to just the quality and quantity of people that we hired. Like we hired a lot of people and they were great engineers and a great team. You know, people would ask me, you know, you've been here at WePay for six years. Why are you still here? And what I would say is like, I've worked on teams where people were very strong technically. And I've worked at teams where people are very nice. It is rare to work at a team where people are both strong technically and nice and like get along. <laughs> and so we had that at WePay and it, it was great. I really, really treasured 
the team that we built and that we worked with. So yeah, that was probably the thing I was most proud of. Yeah. And just for context, I think, I believe you grew the engineering team from like 20 to more than 250. Yeah. So that sounds about right. I want to say when I joined the engineering team was like 16 people. When I left the company as a whole, the WePay org as a whole was like 400 and something people. And, and yeah, probably about 200 engineers or so on the team. So, you know, over six years, it's healthy growth. I think it was like doubling year over year for the most part, but it wasn't like crazy 3X, 4X, 5X per year growth. Perfect. Which I think is healthy, healthy way to grow. Yeah. Obviously you have a lot of work experience throughout your career and, you know, given some of your extensive experience working with this various technology, but an excellent thing that I found very unique about you is also open source a lot of these ideas perspective to the world by giving back to the community, by writing, for instance, for the later half of our conversation, I want to touch on some of the content that you produce. And so listeners can learn more about how you think about some of the trends in the data and software engineering space. Sure. So last year, you co-authored with Dimitri Raboy to publish a technical book called The Missing Readme, which is a distillation of workplace lessons, best practices, and engineering fundamentals that you have taught rookie developers at top companies for more than a decade. Can you share the story behind the writing journey of the book? Yeah, absolutely. So when I left LinkedIn, I had this idea in the back of my mind that I should somehow write down what I had learned while I was at LinkedIn. And initially what was in my mind was mostly around operational stuff because I felt like that was an area at LinkedIn where I just saw a ton of growth and change. And I thought that the tooling and systems that were built at LinkedIn in that area were great. So config management, topology management, deployment, you know, I mentioned CRT earlier, stuff like that. So that was in the back of my mind when I joined WePay. Then, you know, fast forward a few years and I was managing the data infrastructure team. And I, through a series of organizational contortions, ended up inheriting what was called our core payments team at WePay as well. This was a team of like 20 engineers or so. And a good chunk of them were fairly entry level, you know, fresh out of college, one, two years of experience, had only ever worked at WePay. And, you know, I found myself doing a bunch of one-on-ones with these people and saying the same thing over and over again. <laughs> and at a certain point I was like, man, there should really be, it would be great if I just had like a handbook, you know, that I could hand these people that would kind of distill this stuff, you know, and it was, you know, technical advice, organizational advice, career growth advice, stuff like that, to help them on their way and really to help them integrate into the team, the culture of the company and be productive as engineers. So. In 2019, I think I sent out this tweet. It was a poll and I was like, here's what I'm thinking. Should I write this? And it came back like 70 something percent. Yes. And 20 something percent. No. And Dimitri messaged me. Uh, this is all on Twitter. And he said, you know, Hey, if you're serious about this, I'd be, you know, I have a ton of thoughts on it. And he sent me essentially the same tweet that I had sent, but that he had posted a couple years earlier. So he had had the same idea. And I had actually replied to the post with a list of ideas that I thought he should write about <laughs> and since forgotten about it. So we kind of met over that way over Twitter. And we were like, oh, this is funny. Like we're seeing the same thing. So we started working in the summer of 2019 on writing just essentially an, an outline for like the subjects we thought we should cover and wrote a couple of chapters. And the first one we really wrote was the testing chapter. And we started talking to some publishers to try and figure out like, how does this work? How do you write a book? Like, what is anyone interested in this? And eventually settled on No Starch. 
and spent most of the pandemic writing the book. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty much the beginning of the pandemic is really when we really started cranking on it. So, you know, late 2019 through 2020 and into the beginning of 2021, but all of 2020, we were writing the book. So that's sort of the story behind how it came to be and, you know, how we wrote it. And I think in terms of the mechanics, I've never met Dimitri, like hilariously, like he lives in Oakland, which is not too far from where I live, but we, because of the pandemic and just the, the nature of things that like, we have never actually physically interacted with each, with each other in any way, or said, hi, we should probably have a barbecue or something at some point. But he and I both had a lot of open source experience. And so collaborating remotely on the book yeah. felt very natural. And we kind of fell into this rhythm where you know, I would work on one chapter, he'd work on another, and then we would kind of flip and edit the other person's work, provide feedback and flip back. And so we kind of would have a couple of chapters going at, at a given time and crank through it that way. And, and that really, I think, suited us well. Yeah. Yeah. As I look at the website of the book, it had 14 chapters and basically being broken down into like three separate phases, right? Yep. So early chapter focused on what to expect when someone begin the career, sort of the middle student focused on some of the more technical education. And the final chapter covers some of the more like planning and interpersonal skill, like working with managers. And Yeah. Yeah. And I think the sort of core thesis of the book is like, you as an engineer, you know, with a four-year degree, you get spit out of college with a whole bunch of like balancing binary trees and, you know a lot of operating systems classes and stuff like that. And then you land in the workforce and it's like, Hey, let's go to a scrum meeting and let's do agile development. And you're going to be interviewing people by the way. And, you know, here's deployment. Like turns out you need to ship code <laughs> to production and it needs to work properly. And like when it doesn't work, there's postmortems and retrospectives and like all this stuff nobody tells you about, right? And so the, the goal of the book is to bootstrap all that stuff as quickly as possible and provide a bunch of links to more reading. So, you know, if someone finds himself on an SRE team, here are like five books that you can go read about SRE. And I mentioned the Google one earlier, or if somebody finds themselves working with program managers or project managers a lot, like here's what they do. <laughs> here's how it works. Here's the basics of like Kanban and Scrum and Agile and all this kind of stuff. So Definitely. I'll be sure to go the link up the book to the show notes so people can maybe uh, get a copy of it. But there's another part that I'm curious to learn about, which is distribution of the book. Because writing a book and authoring a book, it's not just about like actual writing it, but I'm sure there's a lot of challenges with the content. But I think half of the battle is also getting it into the right hand of people. Yeah. And you mentioned a little bit about like talking with a few publishers and selling on one. Can you share a little bit about some of the challenges with distribution? Yeah. I think these days there's kind of two different channels and then two different publishing models. So in terms of channels, there's like eBooks and then physical books. And if it's physical books, it's either being sold online or it's being sold in a physical bookstore. If it's eBook, it's just being sold online, right? Mm -hmm. So in our case, we were pretty clear in that we wanted the book to be very good in paperback form because the theory was this would be a book that managers would keep a stack on their desk. And when they hired new people, they would hand them, here's the book you should read, right? So the physical copy was important to us. I think also having it be in bookstores was important to us, you know, as kids graduate college and parents and family members want to give presents and stuff, this, this would be something that could be given as two people 
as a gift or as a welcome package when they join. So we wanted to partner with a publishing company that took the physical book stuff seriously. You know, hilariously, this was in 2019, literally four months before the pandemic hit. And what remnants there were of physical bookstores, you know, got shut down for a long time. But this was the theory for us. And in the case of uh, No Starch, which is the publisher that we went with, they had a relationship with Penguin as a distributor, and they are a very you know, well-known, wide range of distribution sales folks that can get your books into bookstores and everywhere they need to be. So I think if you're writing a book, you definitely need to think about these kind of mechanics. Is, are people mostly going to be buying ebook or mostly going to be buying physical copy? And I mean, I think our thesis was largely correct in that more people are buying the physical copy than buying the ebook. Like when we get the little metrics and stuff, I don't remember the exact ratio. It's like two to one or three to one or something like that, but it's a non-trivial difference where, you know, many more people are buying physical copy of this than the ebook copy. Um, Now, a lot of them are buying it online, not in bookstores, but you know, that's the way, way it goes. The second thing I mentioned or second category, I guess I didn't mention, but I alluded to it is really independent versus going with a publisher. So there's a pretty robust world of independent book publishers out there. And I stumbled across this community after the fact, but there's this community on Discord called Tech Writers put together by Will Larson, who's the author of Elegant Puzzle, Staff Engineer, a number of other you know, really great series of blog posts that he has under his Lethian pseudonym. And there's a ton of great resources in there if you are doing independent publishing. Mm-hmm. If you're doing going with a publisher you know, you get a lot more help writing the book, which again, as first time authors, we were kind of interested in specifically when it comes to editing. So I thought I knew how to write. And then I got the first, that testing chapter back from the editor and it was just like red with ink, you know? And so I went off and and learned how to really write. And I think they give you a lot more help when it comes to, you know, getting the book cover done, getting the book into various stores and whatnot. So it's a little bit more of like, you just write the book and they help you with the rest of it. With independent, you do a lot more of that work. Now, the flip side is you can get more money as an independent publisher if people are buying your book. Like on a per book basis, you get more money than if you are going through a publisher. But I think it's a lot more work to actually like get it promoted and get it you know in front of people. So there's like some thought that has to go through there. If you have a huge network of people already that or a, a personal brand like like yourself, for example, you might be very well suited for doing independent publishing because you ha- you can get it out in front of people. On the other hand, if if you don't have that, the book publishers can can help with a lot of that stuff. So mm-hmm. those are a few sort of the nuts and bolts mechanics of it. Also, for people that are really interested in writing, I strongly recommend reading the book on writing well. Not to be confused with on writing, which is by Stephen King, which is also a good book. But on writing well, I think is book number one. I would recommend. Once I got that copy, that testing chapter back from our editor. I kind of talked to some of our marketing editor people at work and they recommended this on writing well book to me. And it was, it was a game changer for me in terms of how to write. It was just fantastic. And I recommend that to everybody, even if you're not writing a book, like it's a great way to learn to write clearly and concisely, which is something that's extremely valuable for engineers, for everybody. So. Yeah. I'm excited to buy that book after this call. And also you actually written an article called how to write a technical book on your blog, which- Yeah, yeah, and that has a lot of this advice in there. Back in 2019, you wrote a piece called The Future of Data Engineering. Mm -hmm. Basically, you predict the rise of real-time infrastructure, many-to-many integrations, and self-service slash automated tooling. Given the quickly evolving modern data stack, 
How have you seen your prediction play out? I feel good. I mean, I feel like my predictions were correct, but incomplete. <laughs> I actually had a, a more recent tweet that included these predictions as a subset, but there's not like, there's a crazy amount of different trends and things happening going on. So there's, you know, real-time data warehouses, analytics, engineering as a thing, you know, reverse ETL, headless BI, the DQ stuff I mentioned earlier, data lake houses, which is a whole new thing of lakes and warehouses combined, data ops and data, like just on and on and on with all this stuff. So I think my predictions in 2019 in that QCon talk were, I feel good about them. I think they were fairly accurate, you know, when it comes to things like data catalog and compliance and stuff like that. I think it's largely borne out, but it's, that is only a very small subset of like all the trends that are happening now. And so were I giving this talk now, I think I would expand the scope of it to be a lot more comprehensive. And I gave sort of another version of this at Confluent recently. I talked with some of their team and I, again, I gave a subset, which was more tuned for Confluent's audience around real-time data warehousing and data mesh and stuff. But I think there's like 10 or 15 things going on right now in the data space in terms of trends. So yeah, feel good about it, but definitely an incomplete list. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And just kind of follow up on that part, just want to double click on those two trends that you just mentioned, which is real-time data wells and data mesh. Why do you think that they will have you know, a disproportionately much impact? on the future of data engineering? So again, I've got a blog. <laughs> it seems like every one of these I've got a blog post on, but maybe it's no coincidence. But on the data mesh front, I think the really important concept in data mesh is this idea of a data product and kind of coming up with logical groupings of data that provide value to the business, You know, productizing them, treating them as real assets, building customer-facing products off of them and stuff. In order to do that, you need a lot of what I named earlier. So, so you need you know, data quality checks and you need a real-time data warehouse and you need to do it properly and you need data cataloging and you need like all this stuff. So data mesh to me as a philosophy encompasses a lot of the trends that we're seeing. And you kind of need those trends to evolve and become mature in order to achieve this holy grail of a data product, which I think is really what we should be aiming for. You know, and there's a lot of write-ups, mine included, on you know what is a data product and and how do you get there. And I think we're on the really early days of this, so that like it's hard for people to really know exactly what data product means, how to get there. But that's why I think the reason why data mesh as a concept is so important is because it's going to drive maybe you know five to ten of these trends until we get this data product as the outcome. Mm-hmm. On the real-time data warehouse front, I'm really excited about it because I think it combines couple different things that I experienced some pain with at WePay. You know, we wanted to do batch offline processing. And for that, we had BigQuery, but then we wanted to do, you know, real-time, you know, time series OLAP processing for like risk analysis. And then we also wanted to do report generation, both for internal and external customers. And you would kind of end up with three different systems for these use cases, you would end up with something like Snowflake for your data warehouse, right? Or BigQuery in our case. You would end up with something like Druid. I think it's Apache now. Apache Druid, maybe it's not. Or Apache Pino for your dashboarding needs, both internal and external. But then those real-time OLAP systems, you know, Pino and or Druid, well, Druid more so than Pino, were not performant enough to do the low latency time 
series analytics you would want to do for like machine learning, essentially where the thing making the query is not a human, but is a machine. Like those need to respond in low milliseconds in order to be viable. And so you would again, end up with a third system, which is something like a materialized view of the various aggregates in different buckets. So it'd be, you know, IP address counts by minute, IP address accounts by hour, IP address counts by day. And you would just do a key value lookup on these in order to get a very quick response. Now, real-time data warehouses, I think are combining all three of these use cases and taking a huge chunk out of the tech stack and replacing it with just one thing that can do all of this, right? So if you, you know, again, disclaimer, I have a relationship, but the folks at StarTree and working on Apache Pinot, and this was something we adopted at WePay with Pinot, are able to do both the humans querying the data and doing dynamic slice and dice, like sort of ad hoc deciding, well, now I want to see it by this dimension. Now I want to see it by this dimension, but then also able to service queries at a fairly low latency level from machines using their star tree index and a bunch of other caching optimization stuff they have. But then also starting to be able to do data warehousing queries through tiered storage, where you might have multiple terabytes of data uh, or petabytes of data, even in something like GCS or S3 or one of these blob stores. And so the exciting thing for me about the real-time data warehousing space is just unifying all this stuff rather than having to have three systems, three different teams, three different operational footprints, three different sets of data. You really can cut down pretty dramatically on all that. I think the caveat here is that it's still early days. Like it's still fairly costly to run something like Elasticsearch or a Pinot or a Druid or a ClickHouse cluster compared to something like a Snowflake cluster, although Snowflake's expensive. Like it's still early days, but I think, you know, over the next 10 years that, yeah. set of technology is really exciting to me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very, very excited to see a lot of innovation in my work to fill out some of these two categories for the coming years or so. Now, so my understanding is that you have been a strategic investor and advisor for many startups in the data space since 2015. And just to name a few, Anomalo on, on data quality checks, mm-hmm. Confluent on real-time streaming, Meroxa on real-time database, uh, StarTree on, on real-time data warehouse, Prefect on workflow orchestration, Stem on data catalog, and Transform on head SPI, and a few others I probably you know, didn't mention yet. Now, what advice could you give to a smart, driven engineer who wants to explore angel investing? Oh boy. Yeah, so <laughs> I would couch this just by saying that, you know, this is only my experience. And I think a lot of what worked for me was just sort of blind luck and opportunity. But I think Early in your career, I mentioned this earlier, but like seeking out people that you want to work with and being thoughtful about who you work with is really important. Building that network out is really important and sets you up over the long term. I think a lot of the opportunities that I've had, both to invest, advise, and just work with other people, have come from my network. So, you know, a lot of those things you just named were people who used to work at LinkedIn. So, you know, Anomalo's VP of product or founding product manager is Elliot Schmuckler. He used to work at LinkedIn. Confluent is from LinkedIn. You know, Anomalo is Keyshore from LinkedIn. There's like a lot of that. You know, WePay, same deal. I got some stuff from WePay people as well. So I think being thoughtful about who you work with is really, really critical in building out that network. And then in terms of like practices that you can do just to grow, I think for me, something that's really paid a lot of dividends is writing and presenting. I just enjoy the writing aspect of it. I don't know. I, <laughs> it's kind of strange. My whole family is made up of like, you know, people who have PhDs in English and JDs and journalism degrees. They're all writers. And somehow I ended up being, I guess I write code, but <laughs> or I used to write code, but I'm sort of the oddball in the family, but I definitely have that communications gene of like wanting to communicate and write. And so 
I found writing to pay dividends, both in terms of clarifying my thought, but also in terms of just building an audience and building connections and helping get thoughts out there. And then lastly, I would flip that around and just say read. There's, especially with like investing and advising and stuff, there's just a lot of great content that wasn't around five years ago. There's a ton of great stuff from Y Combinator and their blog. There's a lot of stuff like on AngelList. Like I wish I had known about AngelList a lot earlier. There's some books out there. There's this old book by uh, Jason Calcanis on angel investing that's, I think, you know, pretty popular with a lot of folks. So definitely read, read and write, work with people you want to work with, be patient. (laughs) <laughs> takes time. That's sort of my canned best I can do advice. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I actually just finished reading Andrew. Ah. That was an excellent book for sure. Yeah. Just a fun fact, maybe because we on that note, you, I saw that you, you wrote a tweet talking about building a Python library called Open Ripple Advisor. Yeah. That basically how advisor for passive indexing. So it seems like you also actively, you know, try to improve your knowledge about investing in, in general, right? Yeah, that's an area I've been focusing on recently is robo-advising and that whole space. I actually just took this Series 65 test, which is a test you kind of have to be to pass if you want to do investment advising and stuff. And I'm, I'm definitely not a registered investment advisor, but it turns out a lot of angel and seed investor type folks also take Series 65 in order to get some base level of investment you know, musculature built up kind of an interesting experience. I got to cram for a few days and then take this test. But yeah, so I've, I've been spending some time. I worked on the open robo advisor stuff and still tinkering around with it. It's an interesting space in general. I don't know if you want to, we can definitely talk more about it, <laughs> but I'll leave that as your call. Yeah, we probably can, you know, maybe leave that for another blog post. Sure, <laughs> sure. <laughs> so as an investor and advisor in these startups, what advice have you given your portfolio companies in hiring decision? and navigating product strategy? This is a tricky one because I think there's a lot of context goes into it. So, you know, advice is going to vary depending on the company, the space they're in, the founders, all that kind of stuff. But one pattern I've noticed when it comes to hiring engineers is, you know, you want to hire not just great engineers, but great engineers that are going to be a great fit for where you're at as a startup. And so, you know, I was talking with somebody who had an engineer they were trying to convince to join but that engineer, it was you know fresh out of college and kind of trying to decide whether they wanted to be at Google or work on this startup. And they didn't like the startup's tech stack. And I was like, well, you know, like this startup and Google are very, very different, just along almost all dimensions. And so you really need to like think through like, is this engineer going to be happy at your startup working on this stuff? Or are they just going to be happy at a company like Google? in that environment. And so I think for hiring startups, a lot of times hiring for startups, a lot of times we kind of get attracted to people that are really strong technically, but there's a lot more than just the technical part of it that comes into hiring early stage engineers and and people in general to make the company successful. So namely, are they a good culture fit? These people are setting the tone of the company for, you know, for everybody that comes after them. So it's really important that you find people that are going to mesh well with the team they're going to be excited to work on product, not as much on, you know, backend technical stuff, unless it, the product is the backend technical stuff. So I think you have to be a little bit thoughtful about the cultural aspect of it, not just the technical part of it. Mm-hmm. It applies, you know, broadly, but I think the impact of it is heightened when you make a poor de- a hiring decision, especially culturally early on. <laughs> it just can be really, really damaging to a startup with very few people, right? On the 
product, what was it? Product strategy front. I think, <laughs> I think one specific example I give, I talk a lot with folks about open source and I've really come around to the idea of what's called BDFL form of open source management, which stands, I think it was coined, I'm not sure it was coined, but it was popularized by Python's founder. It stands for benevolent dictator for life. And it's essentially somebody that is, or some group that is the decider for the project, the direction, like what it is that you guys as a group and community are going to work on. This is stands in contrast to the Apache philosophy. The Apache philosophy is very much, you know, you need to have people from different organizations and it's about the individuals, not the organizations or companies. Everything for the most part is like democratic and there's vote based. And it's almost like is veto power where, you know, for the most part, if somebody votes negative one, it tanks, whatever the decision is, regardless of however many other people. So it's a much more slower moving kind of bureaucratic way of running a project. And I think as a startup, in the, especially in open source space, it's really hard to navigate those kinds of community relationships while also starting a company and selling software around it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I won't say it's impossible. Like, there's a lot of evidence that it will work. And in fact, a lot of companies like adopting Apache software because there's a signal that it's, you know, managed and run by more than one company. But the velocity you get from having this BDFL model is pretty nice. So if you look at a company like Prefect, for example, I would say they kind of follow the BDFL model where the Prefect company is responsible for driving the roadmap and stuff for the open source projects. Contrasting that with, you know, either StarTree or Confluent where there's an Apache community and, you know, they need to work with like the other contributors and Salesforce or whoever else is contributing and navigate and manage the code base and stuff. So I think you know, can be done if you don't do the BDFL route, but if you are doing open source startup, sort of, if it were me (laughs) and I were starting a company with open source, I would definitely go that route as opposed to like the Apache route. And this is coming from someone who, you know, is on that Apache PMC, has done multiple Apache projects. There's definitely value to that community and that style of doing things, but I think it's very popular, especially in the data space these days to kind of treat open source as a sales channel and kind of do it as a way to get leads and build a community for your business. I think it's totally reasonable, but you need to be very thoughtful about the licensing and the way that you govern the project to make sure that it doesn't, you know, hinder your business's ability to ship product. Yeah. Thanks for sharing your perspective on both of those angles, hiring and product strategy. And uh, yeah, especially on the later part about open source governance, I think that's what, uh, what I personally learned after talking with Jeremiah. He <laughs> yeah, and w- one thing I would say is I don't have experience with CNCF, but I see a lot of projects going into the CNCF Foundation, the Cloud Native, I forget what CF stands for, something foundation, like Linkerd, for example, I think is there maybe like Prometheus or something. There, there's a bunch of them in there. That seems to have a lot of traction sort of as an alternative to Apache. I don't know. It seems to me like it might be a little more flexible and governance structure than Apache has been. Yeah, absolutely. And to totally echo your point about using open source as like a, a motion, go to market motion for product like grow, right? Be a community and potentially monetize them with an enterprise cloud product later on. So I want to wrap up our main conversation on a more personal note. Earlier this year, you wrote a tweet that said, it occurred to me today that the valuable and rewarding stuff I have worked on in my career comes from a place of generosity, not scarcity. On a personal level, how do you maintain the consistency of adding value to the relationship you have formed over the years? I thought this was a really interesting question. I kind of 
noodled on it for a bit. I think it's in some ways actually easier to, to do this than you would think, because when you realize you can help somebody, if you just help them, that is actually easier than trying to make it transactional or trying to extract some value out of it. <laughs> and so for me personally, I think I, for the most part, if I recognize I can help someone philosophically, I just try and help them. And, you know, if I don't get anything out of it, fine. Like that's totally fine. It actually is lower effort than trying to figure out how to extract value. <laughs> now, how I go about helping people, I think is mostly just the way most people help people. Like if there's a problem thinking about how I can help them now, in reality, in most cases for me these days, is I find myself, I call it people routing. I do a lot of people routing, like I'll be talking to someone and I'll, it'll just trigger like, oh, wow, I was just having this other conversation with somebody else. Like you guys, I think would really hit it off. You should probably meet. So it's a lot of introductions and stuff like that. And then helping people find jobs, you know, people that are unhappy in their current job or looking for, for a new job, that kind of stuff. So I think that's like the main way that I go about it on a day-to-day basis these times. What I will say is I, I don't actively have like some kind of like decision tree or like anything really formal. It's more like just chatting with people, seeing how they're doing. If I recognize that they're, you know, having an issue thinking, wow, how, how can I help? One of the things I actually realized is the way that I can help has evolved over the years. Like initially in my career, I could help by, you know, the way I say it is I got paid for what I did, what I did. So I would write code, right? I got paid for what I do and I would produce, whether it was people you may know on Hadoop or I produce this or the other thing. And then I started getting paid for like what I know, right? And so this is more like I'm managing, I'm, I'm more architecture, like you guys do the work, like let's talk through and kind of, you know, whether it's teaching people how to interview or teaching people like architectural stuff so they can build systems they need to build, and then these days I started realizing it's more about like getting paid for who I know rather. Um, so again, this is kind of the people routing and introduction stuff. And so it seems like there's various tiers and things kind of shift, you know, the value I provide kind of shifts with it, I think. So that's sort of where the tweet came from. I just, I enjoy helping, <laughs> I guess is the way to put it. If I can, I do, but I don't have any kind of like, you know, really super rigorous yes. system on how to do it. It's yes much more ad hoc. I guess I would say it's a greedy algorithm. Like I kind of just uh-huh. sit there and then when, when an opportunity presents itself, I kind of like, oh, I could help. Here's, here's how I think I can help. Uh, otherwise I, I wait for the next thing to come to me. Absolutely. And in fact, when doing some research on your, on your website, you, you wrote this essay last November that said, work for two companies, mm. big company, a capital C and then a small company yeah. with a small C, right? And I think the notion of that data C company is really about the relationship that you form and you actually fleshed out more on all the yeah. details of how do you do that? Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, it can kind of seem like sleazy or kind of like, I think oftentimes people have this idea of networking as like extroverted kind of, you know, nasty, manipulative kind of thing. Like I'm a huge introvert. I like staying at home. I don't really like going to parties. <laughs> like I don't, it's not like I'm going out and doing a lot of socializing. I don't think you have to, in order to do this kind of thing, I don't think you have to be sleazy or, you know, manipulative about it. The simple thing is just like being a good person and trying to help people when they need help and working with them and maintaining relationships and, you know, seeing how people are doing. That's basically it. (laughs) Fabulous. So Chris, at this point of your conversation, I want to move to the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions and then to provide the answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the broader software and data engineering community whose work you admire? 
So I think I mentioned a couple of them. One of them is Will Larson, the author of An Elegant Puzzle, staff engineer, blog poster extraordinaire from Stripe and so on. He's just somebody that every time I read the stuff he's writing, I, I learn something new or think of something in a new way. And I don't always agree with his writing, but I feel like it really stretches my thinking. Second one would be Maxime. The guy's just prolific. So Maxime Beauchemin, he, he wrote Airbnb. He's currently founded a company, Preset. Is that the name of the company or the open source project? I can't, I can't remember. Maybe both. Superset. Uh, what, uh, Superset? Is that what it is? Superset is the open source. And- there we go. There we go. Yeah, Superset. So we didn't use Superset at WePay. And I have to admit, when I first saw it, I was like, why would you want an open source dashboarding thing? But now I, I think I get it. It's, it's very interesting. And he's got some great blog posts on it too. But he's another guy that I really respect. Again, very different from the way that I think about things and do engineering, but I feel like I learn from him all the time. And I think, you know, proof's in the pudding. He's got some amazing, successful open source projects out there. He's single-handedly created multiple multi-billion dollar spaces. You know, you look at just Astronomer, for example. Last one I would say is Julia Evans. If you don't follow her on Twitter or her blog, you definitely should. It's great. So she does all these, you know, for, for people that, that don't know, she does all these great explainers and educational posts around everything from DNS to Unix tools and command line tools and stuff. And they're all like graphic and visually done. So there's like a lot of pictures and kind of comical drawings and stuff, you know, recurring theme here. I think two out of three are, are sort of good communicators. I think that's something that I just really enjoy. Not, not that Max is not a good communicator, but I think I picked him more for his open source projects, but yeah, those are the three I would highlight. I had two other bonus ones, Gunnar Morling and Coda Hale, who are all throughout there as well. Gunnar, I think is just Again, really prolific in the data space. Debezium project is the one that he runs. He also does a, just a ton of other stuff. And then Coda, another one that really stretches my thinking, currently at MailChimp, wrote Drop Wizard at Yammer, uh, which is a Java web service thing that, that I've used and just, I really vibe philosophically with some of the stuff that he does. So Yeah, thank you for sharing. Be sure to include those profiles yeah. in the show notes. Cool. Number two, name one book that you would recommend for people. <laughs> out of it, an engineering mindset besides missing readme. Yeah, I can't recommend my own, huh? So the one, it made the rounds a few years, maybe five or six years back, so it was really popular, called Empire of Light. I don't remember the author's name. It's really about Tesla, Edison, and Westinghouse and sort of the commercialization and development of the electrical grid and, and stuff. And it was really popular, I think, in the Valley because these three characters kind of distill different personas that you can still see echoes of in the Valley today, sort of the mad scientist type, the entrepreneur and the business person, you know, I like that book because I think it really makes you think about engineering and the work that we do on a different scale. So time scale, it's, it's not really, you know, like the missing read me or one of these more technical books, more of a soft kind of a read and not that it's a short read or anything. I think it's three or four or 500 pages or something, but I really just found that it expanded the way that I think about the work that I do, the place, you know, the time that we're in that kind of stuff. So that's my book recommendation. Probably an audio book is what I would recommend it to consume it as now. Although I, I think I read it back in the day, but <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Then finally, imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all the early stage software engineers on Twitter. What could you tweet about? <laughs> so I think I would tweet, there are really no absolutes in technology, just trade-offs. And that would be the tweet. There are no 
absolutes in technology, only trade-offs. The reason I would tweet that I think is, you know, I think especially for early stage engineers, they get grouped into two buckets. One is people that are overconfident and the other is people that are underconfident. And I think this tweet applies to both equally. So for those that are overconfident, you're probably wrong, <laughs> at least for some subset of things. And, or if not wrong, at least there are, you know, trade-offs that you are unconsciously making by being opinionated about certain things. And then inversely for the people that are underconfident, you know, the people around you that seem confident, keep in mind that they're probably wrong and they're probably trade-offs that they are either deliberately or not deliberately making. So I think that's something that I would just want to highlight for the engineers is like, you know, early in my career, I was definitely, I think more on the Dunning-Kruger side of things thinking, you know, not knowing what I didn't know. So I, I think that advice would have really helped me. And one of our VPs at LinkedIn was doing an interview for some principal level engineer. And we were at lunch and he was asking me like, what interview question would you ask this person? I said, I would ask this principal engineer a question with no right answer. That's what I would do. I would want to see what they answer me. And I think that's the kind of stuff for early engineers that they need to learn how to navigate is you're going to be put in positions where there's just no right answer. And so acting like there is a right answer all the time is just not realistic. You need to just think through the trade-offs and make a call and understand that there's going to be some downside to what you're doing and figure out how to mitigate that downside and kind of think through it, acknowledge that, you know, there are alternatives. I think a lot of the toxic stuff in engineering does come from this position of absolutes. So, and I've been guilty of it too, but that would be my tweet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There are absolute only trade-offs. I think that's a brilliant way to end our conversation. So Chris, I really enjoyed chatting with you today, learning about your education background at Santa Clara, your time working at PayPal, your journey at LinkedIn, build out various projects from scaling the cloud cluster to building out the people you may know algorithms, some lesson learned, interviewing people, creating open source project, your journey scaling the data infrastructure team at WePay. And then later on, I'll come to when we touch on various threats related to writing a book, a predict change in data engineering, investing in data startup, as well as general high-level advice on how you be generous with your time and contribute back to people in your community. Uh, I'll be sure to include everything that we discussed today uh, in the interview onto the show notes, so our listeners can have a chance to take a look, follow up, and learn more about some of uh, the exciting work that you had are doing and will do in the, in the coming years or so. So yeah, this is definitely like the longest podcast I've ever done. And I really enjoy <laughs> I um, told you yeah. I was robust. I, I warned you. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. I really, I really do. This is a, a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. And I hope you have a, a great rest of your day. Yeah, you too. Bye. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now. <laughs>